Good morning, gentlemen. Happy Amen morning to you. Seems to get nippy on Thursdays. I don't know why that is. It takes a real man to get out of bed at 5.30 in the morning. All right. We are in 2 Samuel, and you will recall that uh, uh, Jonathan and his father Saul have died. And it looked like the dynasty of Saul was over, but Ishbosheth, one of the other sons, decides he wants to give a run for the office. And uh, that... That is defeated by God's grace. So David is established in Judah, and then he's increasingly established in all of Israel, uh, uniting the 12 tribes under his reign. And then we saw in chapter 5 that God even goes out against his enemies, the Philistines, and begins to give David success as a kingdom and establishes his kingdom. And this is what God does. When God chooses to establish a kingdom, it will be established. If God makes a promise to you, it will come true. If He says to you that you're going to be ruling over the universe at the right hand of God, you will do that. And uh, time and eternity will tell and and prove this to be true. And David found that when he was uh, uh, anointed as a young man, just a teenager, he had to wait a while. He had to flee from Saul for years. But in God's timing, he becomes the king. We saw that he ruled in Hebron for seven and a half years. And then he uh, moved his kingdom to Jerusalem. It was the hill where uh, a mighty fortress was established by the Jebusites. And when the Israelites came into the Holy Land under Joshua, they couldn't defeat the Jebusites. And the Jebusites maintained that fortress on the hill at Jerusalem. And uh, David decided to take his kingdom there for several reasons. One was... There were obviously some false uh, offerings that were being made to false gods on that hill. It was a strategically established hill, and it also was the city that was nicely located in between Judah and Israel. So it's kind of like Washington, D.C. You know, you can access it from the north, and you can access it from the south. So that makes it a good capital. And so it was with Jerusalem, and God gave David great success in taking the Jebusites and that walled city. David used his noggin and listened to the Lord, and he went up through the tunnels from which the Jebusites would come down and get their water in the springs. You can go there today and see that same tunnel. David sent his men up there, and they defeated the Jebusites and took Jerusalem, and David established his home there, his palace. So that was to be the royal city. And uh, then we saw that David, of course, being a man after God's own heart, he wanted God's presence there in Jerusalem. He wanted that to be God's capital, not just David's capital. So he he went to get the Ark of the Covenant at Kiriath-Jerim, Bel Judah, as it's called in our text. And he goes to get the Ark, but he is not careful to be sure that the priests are careful to worship God and to handle holy things the way that God had said to And so Uzzah and the other priests were there walking along with the ark on a cart like the Philistines would carry the ark, not on poles like they were instructed to. And when Uzzah put up his hand to stabilize the ark at one point when it was going to fall in the mud, Uzzah sticks his hand up and he's struck dead for it. And the reason was uh, in God's instructions to carry the ark the way it was, uh, it was to keep man from looking upon the ark or touching it. What Uzzah didn't realize, there was more filth in his little finger than there was in the whole mud in the street. He was trying to keep the ark from the mud, but he ended up touching it with human flesh uh, from a sinful man. So he was struck dead. David was afraid and he was angry. And they called that place Perez Uzzah. God breaks out against Uzzah. And David didn't know what to do. But you remember the house uh, of Obed-Edom began to be blessed. So David says, oh, the Lord does want to bless us. So he quickly goes and gets the ark, has it carried the proper way, and brought into the city of David. And David had a tent there for the ark, just like the ark had had in the tabernacle in the wilderness. So now David is being consolidated by God as the king of Israel. God has, as it were, taken up residence in the city of David to bless the people. And that's where we turn now. And now, of course, we come 
to a text that is a classic text in our Bible, referred to much uh, in the New Testament, because here God is doing something with David that is absolutely astonishing and that has rippled through the ages and still blesses us today. So we're going to look at Roman, uh, uh, at uh, 2 Samuel 7 and 8, but particularly 7 is this classic text that we want to be sure that we spend some time studying. So let's look first of all at uh, verses 1 through 17 in 2 Samuel 7. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, for from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your, your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Okay, let's, let's look at these 17 verses and note that God makes covenant with us. God makes covenant with us. Our relationship with Him is not based primarily upon our commitment to Him. It's based primarily on His commitment to us. And the reason that we believers can be called God's people is that He has made a covenant with us. What is a covenant? It's an arrangement with two parties where promises are made. And God makes a promise to us, His bride. And just like in a wedding service, He takes us before the altar and He pledges Himself to us completely. Nothing shall part us. That's the reason that Christian marriage... We strive to be faithful to our wives. We strive to keep that marital covenant. Why? Because it pictures the covenant of God with His people. And our whole lives are to be lived out to demonstrate the grace of God. And so when we make covenants, and they're, they're rare, but when we make a covenant with our wife, we seek to keep it primarily for theological reasons. We, we seek to love her. We seek to like her. We seek to serve her. We cultivate that within us. And it's not because she's beautiful or because she's charming or because she's nice to us. It's because we're being obedient to the Lord who is gracious to us, made covenant with us. And we've given Him many reasons to divorce us. We've given us many reasons to go choose another people. And yet through the ages He has remained faithful to us because He made a covenant with us. And His very reputation as God is based on His faithfulness to you. That's the reason that you can rest. You can chill out. Because this is not based upon your perfect performance. His integrity is related to His promise to you. 
so you can trust Him to be faithful to you. So here we're seeing that God makes covenant with us and how dramatic it is. First of all, notice that God wants to live with us, verses 1 through 7. And this comes by explanation, this principle, to David because uh, David had forgotten exactly why it is that the ark was there. The ark was there because God wants to live with His people. David's not manipulating God. David's not in control of this. It's not David's great idea. God's always been with His people. That was His choice, to select the people, elect them, and then to be with them. Not just like a distant God up in the heavens who calls these people out and says, you all make the best of it. God calls us out and then lives with us. Now notice how this text starts. In the first three verses, it starts with a very reasonable religious attempt by David to do something spectacular for God. And we can see this all over the world in all religions. No matter what religion you are, if you are devoted to your God, you want to build Him a house. You want to do something special. Look, in Washington, D.C., even in America, we have the National Cathedral. We, we want to build a house for our God. Uh, and we're a little embarrassed about it because we're not a Christian nation and we are pluralistic. We invite other nations and religions to come in, but we just couldn't help ourselves, could we? Now, in other nations where they've adopted a religion, uh, they clearly uh, put national resources into building houses for God. I mean, just travel through England, uh, go through Germany. You'll see all kinds of cathedrals and houses built for God. That's just a general instinct. You can see it in the Muslim world. Wherever they go, they want to put a mosque. And a, mo a mosque is a mark that God owns that neighborhood. Allah owns that neighborhood. So they want to build a house for God. They want to lay claim to property for God all around the world. And you can look at the Egyptians. They're doing the same thing uh, in, in ancient times. So this is an instinct of David. And it looks like it's perfectly reasonable. God has been good to me. He's slain the Philistines. He's given us peace on all sides. We conquered Jerusalem for heaven's sakes. Let's build God a house. And when he goes to the preacher, well, it sounds perfectly reasonable to the preacher too. Preachers usually do like to have big houses for God because that happens to be their house too. So they like the idea. So Nathan says, David, do what's in your heart, man. You're a man after God's own heart. What a wonderful thing that you want to do. Go ahead. And then God talks. And this is so important, gentlemen, that we not just use religious common sense in how we want to live our lives. You've got to listen to the Lord. And sometimes that's sort of subtle. But you've got to consult the Scriptures, see what God is saying, study His will for our lives. Be sure that you frame up everything according to His Word, not just religious common sense that any religion can follow. So if we want to build a house for God, slow down just a minute. Let's consult God and His Word. And here, God has some important things to teach David. So David, when was it that I said I wanted you all to build me a house? Is there anything in the Word that said I wanted a house? Did I ever say anything to Moses or Joshua? Do you have record of that, David? So first of all, God Himself is challenging David about what does the biblical record show? What, do, what does the history of my oracles to my people display for you? What can you learn from that? David, something you've missed is I've always been in a tent. And the reason I was always in a tent is so that I could travel with my people. I never looked for a glorious house. I just wanted to be with my people, David. You've missed it all along. So David needs to be corrected. So we've got to go back to the word, check your heart, check your motives, even check your, your methodology and learn from the Scriptures how we go about doing what we do. It's so important in evangelism. Just study the Apostle Paul. Study the Lord Jesus Christ. See how they speak to unbelievers. See how much respect and love they give them. See how they carefully come to them and speak within their own culture and within their own language to the best of their ability. Just observe how they do it before you dash out and just use religious common sense. But the other thing about David, since he is a man, that's most commendable here, is that he got corrected not only by the Word, but by the Word through another person. <laughs> you know, we can all take great pride in the fact that, well, I consulted the Scriptures this morning, and, you know, I, had, I corrected myself. And, you know, <clears throat> it's great when you go to the Bible 
and, you know, and you study it out and you come to some new principle that you want to live by, you feel kind of good about being corrected. But if somebody else has to tell you, it's not nearly as good. And as we've spoken many times before in here, especially if it's your wife. But here is David's chaplain, it's David's prophet who comes to him and initially is pleasing the king and saying, do what's on your heart. But then David, I mean rather Nathan, consults the Lord in the evening. And the Lord speaks to Nathan, David's prophet, and really God's prophet. And it's Nathan who comes to David. And David has to listen to God's word through another person. Can you do that? Can you learn from another person as well, even your wife? Can you listen to brothers that are in your churches and listen to them and their perspective? Can you submit to the wisdom that God gives through other men? That's one reason that we really love for you to be in small groups because it's when you're sharing your circumstance with some other guys who are not in your circumstance who can more objectively take the Word of God and apply it to your circumstance that you often get wisdom. So we we love to have Amen Bible Study in here. We also love to have you in small groups. You know, we've been advertising here lately about the Gospel Coalition, uh, April 13 through 15. Check your calendars. If you can go to that thing, a bunch of us are going. Some of our best teachers in the country are going to be there, Tim Keller and Don Carson and John Piper and others. Come join us. Just one example of just laying some time aside to study the Word of God. You know, the Israelites three times a year, every male uh, over 12 years of age within a certain radius of Jerusalem would travel Jerusalem and have festivals. They would celebrate and worship, but they would also study the Word for a whole week, three weeks a year. I mean, some people who are going to seminary right now, that's what they do, about three or four weeks a year. You can have a major Bible education if you'll set some time aside to study the Word of God. And that's where our wisdom is going to come from, and that's where this wisdom ultimately comes from. David had a, a religious instinct. It was generally to honor God. I'm sure it was, had mixed motives to some degree. But David wanted to do a great thing for God. He just hadn't learned to consult the Word the way he should until Nathan corrected him. Now, notice that Nathan shows him how... God wants to be with His people. And that's the essence of the matter. And Nathan says to him that he's not to build the temple at this point. I remember a case where I was using, I think, some religious common sense. And I was, had been a pastor about two years. And uh, since I've been a Christian, pretty much, I've, I've seen how we are to be committed to the Great Commission. I mean, the gospel itself commands that it goes to all the nations. Why? Because the gospel is for all peoples, not just one ethnic group, not just Americans, uh, not just one age, but all people of all ages. So I knew that fairly early on. So after a couple of years of pastoring, I thought, well, maybe I need to go to the nations myself. Maybe I need to leave my hometown and, and become a foreign missionary. Now, there are some people like Mitchell and Lisa Moore who should become foreign missionaries and did it last year. They're now in Indonesia. And I believe they really sought the Lord's consulting on that and are really uh, uh, doing a wise thing. Not so with me. I just had a religious instinct. (laughs) So I go to one of our older men in our congregation who had actually spent some time in the mission field. And he just said to me, he said, Sandy, part of my role was to recruit missionaries from all over North America and all over the world to serve in our mission group. And he said, I can tell pretty quickly if someone works fairly well monoculturally or someone works well cross-culturally, he said, I suggest you stay where you are. (laughs) So early on, my religious instincts got fired, and I've I've been monocultural, you know, in terms of one nation uh, where I live uh, all my life because of that. And I'm grateful for for my Nathan, uh, with whom I consulted, uh, who squashed my plans just like that. And I felt like that was a word from the Lord. Here was a man outside my own body, outside my own experience, who knew me well enough and was old enough with enough experience to give me some, some good advice. And since then, of course, I realized, well, I'm a quartermaster uh, officer. I'm supplying the troops on the front line, and every uh, military force has to have somebody behind the scenes who's working as well, and that's been my, my role ever since. So seeking to mobilize resources for the field. And those of you who are here, almost all of you are in the same situation where we're mobilizing for the international effort. 
Well, David had to learn that too. Everybody has their place and their time. And of course, we know that this temple is going to be built by his son, Solomon. And there are reasons for that. And I've mentioned a couple of texts here, 1 Kings 5, 3, 1 Chronicles 22, 8, where God makes it clear he didn't want his house built by a man of war. He wanted his house built by a man of peace. Solomon comes from the word shalom, which means peace. Solomon's a man of peace. Now, Solomon had other problems, but David had a lot of blood on his hands, and God didn't want the warrior to build the house. He wanted a peaceful man to build it. And so David was able to inspire his son, give Solomon a vision for what God wanted to do through his life. And David found that everything that needs to be done in this world doesn't necessarily need to get done by you personally, but you can be the one who inspires others. You can be the one who resources others. You can be the one who encourages others and helps advise others. And it's that way with a lot of us who are older. One of the roles you have in life uh, as you get older is always be looking for others to download. Look to others to take leadership. Get behind them. Uh, why would you be competing with younger men? You need to be behind them and encouraging them uh, along the way. David was being taught that's what he's to do. Now, David learned that God wants to live with us, but he also learned in verses 8 through 11, God wants to bless us. He wants to live with us because he wants to bless us. Look how, how God puts it in this text. He reminds David, I'm the one who took you from the pasture. He's saying, David, don't you realize I took you out of that pasture? You didn't come up with this. I went and got you. And God goes on to say in verse 9, I have been with you wherever you went. And then he says, I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And then look at this language in 9b. Instead of you're making a great name for me, he says, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. So David, don't you think that by building me a house, you're going to make my name great? No, the first thing is, I'm going to make your name great. I'm the benevolent one. I'm the one who's going to be uh, gracious to you uh, rather than you establishing me. And then he says in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people so that they will be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more. You see the care and the blessing that God gives to His people. And He says, David, you have to understand, this is why I was with them, because I wanted to give them rest. That's been my objective all along in choosing my dwelling place. What was good for my ministry to my people that I love and I want to bless? And I tell you guys, God's been that way ever since. Every way in which He's acted in your life is to get into your life to be with you in order to bless you, even when you thought you are being cursed. He's been disciplining you, not cursing you. And He wants to bless you and in all of these ways and ultimately give you rest. That's why, of course, when Jesus came on the earth, He said, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. What's the yoke? It's discipleship. It's being under His Word. It's being in His family. It's being disciplined by Him. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So yes, at times my discipline will feel hard, but yet it is light because it fits you. It's right for you. Take it on. And what happens? We get rest. Now, ultimately, when we think of rest, we, as you know, people in our culture, we think of just taking a nice you know, Wednesday afternoon nap or something. <laughs> And certainly that is restful, and one of the things that we do on the day of rest, on the Sabbath, is to often take naps and to regain our physical strength. But rest means to not be afflicted by the enemies that are around you, to have the fullness of God's blessing in your life, to experience completion and satisfaction in Him, and to have joy. And obviously we know that when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, or even when we before then, when we go into His presence at our death, we'll have rest. We'll have cessation of hostilities with all, uh, all of uh, our enemies, the demons and the underworld and everything else that's trying to destroy your life. You have complete rest from them. You also have everything that your heart desires. You'll have a fullness and a satisfaction. So we know that we'll have ultimate rest when we're with Him. 
But Jesus says, come to me now, and I'll give you rest now. You won't get the fullness of your rest. You won't get the complete rest. But you'll have this soul rest. Why? Because when you come to Him and you trust Him, <coughs> you're trusting Him to give you His righteousness. You're trusting Him by His death on the cross to take your sins so that all the guilt that you fear, all of the wrath of God that you deserve is gone. You have rest right now. You're at peace right now with God. The one being in the universe you do not want to be your enemy is God. And when you receive Jesus Christ, God is not your enemy. He's your friend. He is with you to bless you. That brings rest. Now, ultimately, when Jesus Christ comes back in His physical glory, we'll have physical rest as well. But we have spiritual rest now. And that was God's intent from the very beginning. You can see it here with David. Now, look at verses 12 through 17. And what you see is David, God is saying to David here with the beginning of verse 12, nothing will thwart him. He's saying, David, first of all, verses 12, 13, your death will not thwart me. So God is saying, I'm going to bless you, and your death is not going to end it. Why? Because he says, when you're, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is, when your kingship is over and it's all said and done, I'm not through, he says. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That's Solomon. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here's what God is saying to David. David, I'm not only blessing you, I'm blessing your family, which will become a dynasty. And this dynasty is going to last for a long time? No. This dynasty, David, is going to last forever. Now, we all know that uh, every ambitious human king or potentate desires to have a dynasty. I'm not talking about the Bushes and the Clintons. But think about, think about Hitler. A 1,000-year reign. 1,000-year Reich. He couldn't help but think of that. Because every narcissistic <laughs> ruler wants to rule forever, beyond his own lifetime. So Hitler was going to set up something beyond his lifetime. I assume he knew he was going to die sometime. A 1,000-year Reich. Well, all dynasties want to do that. But here's the fact of the matter. In David's time, or up until David's time, and even after David's time, most ancient Near Eastern dynasties lasted 100 years. Now, they all attempted to last longer than that, but it was about, about 100 years. Now, you get some long ones, like the 18th dynasty of Egypt, which was 250 years. But look at David's dynasty. God makes this promise, and after David you have about 400 years before they're taken into exile to Babylon. 400 years, that's unprecedented in the ancient Near East. But God is saying, no, it's beyond the 400 years. This dynasty is going to last forever and ever and ever. And so the Jewish people, as you know, were very careful about keeping their, their genealogies because that was the way that you proved that you were an Israelite. You had a genealogical record that made you legitimate, somewhat like the English society, you know, 100 years and before. Uh, if you look at Downton Abbey, for example, your, your bloodlines are everything. And uh, it's true that if you, if you leave country, it becomes less significant because your name and legacy depends on the estate that you... Uh, your estate is dependent upon your name and legacy. If you, but if you go to America... They just leave you out of the genealogy. So if you've ever tried to do you know, trace your genealogy and you come from England, uh, you'll find that you're going to run into a big problem because when your forefathers left England, they just got left out of the, of the genealogies because it didn't matter. You'd left all claims to land in England, so you just got dropped out. But other than that, you'll find very carefully kept English genealogies, which are nice for doing your, your record. And hey, look, if you go back to an English king, don't worry about it. All of us do. Uh, <laughs> some, some way you're connected. Uh, 
but it was true with the Jewish people. But especially, you notice the genealogy that you find in the New Testament. And here, Jesus' legitimacy as the promise of Messiah is based upon his genealogy back to David. Because this is an eternal dynasty. And if this really is the dynasty of God, whoever this Messiah is, he must be a child of David, which of course Jesus is. And you'll find that in Luke. You'll find it in Matthew. You'll find it in Acts when the apostles go about preaching in the synagogues to Jewish people. Of course the Jewish people know that the Messiah has to be of the fulfillment of this dynasty. And so the apostles, when they go to the synagogues, are very careful to say, this is the son of David. And you'll find it, of course, in Romans. When Paul gives his great explication of the gospel of Christ, he shows in verse 5 of chapter 1, right from the beginning, he's the son of David. And you find it, of course, elsewhere in, in the epistles and in Revelation. He is the fulfillment of it. That's because God here had said, death will not thwart him. But notice what else. Sin will not thwart him. Verses 14 and 15. And this is a good thing, and I'll tell you why. The kings that immediately followed David were not a good bunch. They were often fairly typical of ancient Near Eastern kings. Some of them were brutal. Some of them were very wicked and dishonest. Some of them worshipped false gods. If you take the northern kingdom that, you know, split off from Judah after Solomon. So you had David and then Solomon, and then the kingdom split. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, where the ten tribes were, there's not one good king among them all. All those years until 722, we're, we're about in the you know, early, or the early 900s uh, with, with David. Uh, he becomes king 990, something like that. All the way down to 722 B.C., not one good king in the north. And they're not maybe all as bad as uh, Ahab and, and Jezebel, but they're all marked as wicked kings. What about the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin? Well, I have 21 kings. You probably have six, maybe seven that were considered good kings. So maybe a third of them. And even the ones that were good, they weren't perfect. I mean, you've got good little King Josiah, becomes a king at eight, destroys all the false uh, idols and and renews Israel and discovers the, the book of God and reinstates Passover festival and all that. But he dies at 39. Why? Because he stupidly fights a battle that God told him not to fight at 39 years of age. You could go all the way through and find all these kings are imperfect, to be sure. But here's what God is saying to David. David, I'm already predicting this. This will be no surprise to me. But I'm telling you that even that sin will not thwart me. He said, I will discipline them. And in verse 15, look at this. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So I'm not going to deal with them like I did with Saul. I'm going to discipline them. I'm not going to cut them off. An amazing promise being made to David. And then he says, not only will your death not thwart me, not only will sin not thwart me, but time will not thwart me. Verses 16 and 17. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And I've given you there a couple of texts. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus Christ, the son of David, says, And I will build my church. So Christ is coming to build His church, and it will not be thwarted by all of time. And sometimes we get really exercised about this thing or that thing or the other thing, the church itself and how it seems to be corrupt and decaying, about all the opponents, philosophical and theological opponents that seem to be uh, afflicting the church. But here's the promise, that nothing will take His church away. There's no way you can erase the church from the earth because God has said it's going to be here. There may be times when God disciplines the church and prunes it, but it's not going to be wiped out. It's impossible because God has made a promise that His house will always be here. And in Ephesians 2.22, you have one of those great texts where we know what the house is. The house is not made with the beautiful stones that Solomon put together to make the temple in Jerusalem. The house now is the church itself. And Paul says that's the temple. 
So the temple of God is not some cathedral somewhere. The temple of God is the people of God. He takes up His residence there. The Ark of the Covenant, if you will, is among us. And God's presence is vouchsafed to us for all time. So this amazing promise of a dynasty given to David here in chapter 7 is our delight even to this day because we can see that Jesus Christ is the one who has come as the new David, that He is still ruling, that death has no grip on Him. David's grave, uh, Peter said, is still there in, you know, in the Holy Land. Uh, he, he, was bar- he was dead there. But he says, this grave of Jesus is empty because He was raised from the dead and He now rules with God on high. He's still ruling over God's Israel, which is His believing church. Now let's look at verses 18 through 29 and look at David's response. This is very instructive to us because we ought to be responding to him too. Because we are in this covenant with him. We are in the dynasty. We're brothers of Jesus Christ. That makes us princes. We're all princes in the royal kingdom. And there ought to be a response from us. Let's look at David's response. Verse verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, And there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people, making Himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, You are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is an amazing statement. David is showing us he gets the point. David was following religious instincts. I'm going to take my abilities my craftsmanship, my resources. I'm going to make a great name for God and I'm going to build Him His house. And David is saying here, Lord, I get it. You have made me a house. And you're giving me a great name. And David now once again is overwhelmed by the grace of God. And that's what it means to be a man of God is that you are continually overwhelmed by the grace of God not in what you're doing for Him, but what He is doing for you. And you can see from the very beginning, first of all, in verses 18 through 21, we understand that uh, we will praise Him for His covenant. We are His servants. David humbles himself. He says, who am I? You see, this is the the way that we worship God. is not so much, Lord, look what I've done for you today. But we're saying, Lord, why did you do this for me? Who am I that you would bestow these things upon me? to give me this name and to give me a dynasty. You understand you're in the dynasty now, don't you? And isn't there a sense of amazement among us that he would take you, who are you, and who is your house? That he would make your house a covenant family. David's saying, not just me, but my whole house. And we know from David's house, he makes all kinds of sins as a husband and as a father. We could see from his own sons that they in many ways were like Eli's sons, poorly disciplined. And you look at David's house and you say, well, that's no picture of righteousness. David's amazed. He knows enough about his own house to know why would God be kind to my house? Why would he make my house a covenant house? And you understand this. When you're in the dynasty, 
as a believer, He does promise His presence with your family. And that doesn't mean that you have no Absaloms. It doesn't mean that you have no Ishmaels or no Esau's, of course. Within covenant families, you always have some who will reject. But God promises His presence with you. He sets your household apart so that your whole household worships God. That's the reason we bring our three-year-olds and we teach them the Lord's Prayer. Even before they can express their faith in Christ, they're going to learn the Lord's Prayer. They're going to state the Apostles' Creed. Why? They're set apart for worship. It's your whole house. So you go before God and say, what's my house that you should be this kind to us? So we're His servants. Now in this, these verses that I just read, verses 18 through 29, you'll find the word servant ten times. Especially toward the end of this text, David is making a point. God, I'm not manipulating you. You're not my mascot. You're not the one that follows my wishes or my commands. I am your servant. And there are several things that make a servant a servant. And once again, you can look at Downton Abbey and see what a servant is. Someone who knows they're at the behest of another person. They're seeking to bring pleasure to another person. They're serving another estate, not their own estate. They take orders from other people, and they get themselves right happy about it. So a servant, you'll know if you're a servant by how you act when you're treated like one. And most of the time in East Memphis, we don't want anybody to treat us like a servant. We're treating other people like servants. And so when you get treated like a servant, you go, Whoomph. well, then you know you're not a servant. And David says over and over again to get the point here, because God had already called him his servant, David makes it real clear, I'm your slave. I'm your servant. I'm at your beck and call. And that's the one way David wants to be known in this prayer. I am completely at your service. Gentlemen, are you there? This is what happens when you have received the dynasty and you know you didn't deserve it. There's nothing in you that inherently can claim such a dynasty. It was just handed over to you, you poor peasant. So what else are you going to say? I'm completely at your beck and call. Whatever you want, I'm your servant. That's David's response. That's the first thing. Notice, secondly, that we extol God as the only God in verse 22. Therefore, Lord, you are great. Now, if David had built the house and then said, you're great, he would have said, you're great because I say so. Because I took my resources and built you a house and now that makes you great because I made you great. And now David's learning that God's greatness comes from another place. His greatness is because He's made you great. You, who had no greatness in and of yourself, He's making you great. Therefore, O oh God, you are great because of what you've done with us. This dust that you've made princes of the universe. How great you are. And he says, there is no God beside you. So when you come to know the living God, you immediately develop a position that says, no other God is even a close second place. There's a jealousy that you begin to develop in your heart. You begin to develop it intentionally. That anything that pretends to rival God, I'm going to speak out against. I'm going to be standing against it. Because there is no other God. And He is so gracious and He's made me a dynasty. And of course, I'm going to say there is no other God because there's not. But I'm impassioned about it now because I've experienced the love and grace of this one God. You see how David becomes very devoted when he sees how God is gracious to him. And then thirdly, we delight in His people. Notice that David says, there is one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem to be His people. So when you become part of this dynasty, you understand that these people are great. Once again, not because they're smarter than people outside the dynasty. It's not because they're better looking. But it's because God has called them. And that's what makes them great. And therefore, when you love the Lord, you begin to love His church. Because the same grace that's been poured out upon you, you can see this poured out upon the rest of the family. And then D, when you get to verses 25 through 29, we depend on His grace. We depend upon His grace. David says, Lord, you confirm this. This will be true because you said it. And because you said it, it will be established. And we're completely dependent upon your continuing grace toward us in order to perpetuate the role that you've given us. 
And gentlemen, when you've come into Christ and into His people and into this dynasty and you've taken up His mission, there's only one way you can do it. It's with His continuing grace and mercy toward you. You are always His humbled beggar servant. You're always looking to Him for resources. In every situation, you're asking Him for His help. And that's the way that you get out-of-body power and resources in your life. You're getting it from God to help you fulfill your role in this life to which He's called you. Now, lastly, look at verse, uh, chapter 8. And here we see that our enemies shall not prevail. And let's take a look at a few of these verses. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. David took Metheg Ammah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. You say, good heavens, that looks like ISIS. What is he doing? Well, this is typical Mideast behavior, which of course is what you see with ISIS. And yet here, what you have, notice this is going against Philistines and Moabites who made themselves the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people from early on when the Israelites were traveling to the promised land under God's warrant, these people opposed them, tried to deceive them, tried to destroy them. What you have in the Old Testament is what we call intrusion ethics. It's the ethics of the end time coming into time. So God is judging through David. That's the way that you look at a theocracy. I had someone tell me, a non-Christian just the other day, well, you say it's a theocracy, but you know that's all the Muslims are saying is that they have a theocracy. I said, that's right. They are saying they have a theocracy. The problem is they're wrong. And this person laughed and said, oh, so you're the only one that's right. And I said, that's right. <laughs> I said, that's what the Bible claims. You either believe the Bible or you don't. I believe it. And the Bible is claiming that these are God's people. Did you just read it in chapter 7? These are God's people. This is His established kingdom. And if you oppose His people and His kingdom, you're opposing God. And therefore, when you continue to oppose him, sometimes there will be acts of judgment. And in this case, David is the agent of God. Now, fortunately, I think, for the physical lives of a lot of the rest of the world, God has taken his theocracy and he has made it a prophetic theocracy. So the theocracy of Israel ended with the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the nation of Israel, and with God setting up his kingdom through human beings. We are now in exile away from Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we don't have a nation. There is no theocracy on the earth. The theocracy is at the right hand of God. And the new theocracy comes down with the new heavens and the new earth. Then there will be judgment again. There will be blood and guts again. Those who have opposed the Lord will be destroyed when Jesus Christ comes back in all of His glory. So the theocracy will be reestablished. Now we're between the theocracies. What Islam has not understood, obviously, is number one, they had the wrong theocracy. And number two, if they got the right theocracy, time is out. It's over. We're waiting for Jesus Christ to come back and reestablish it. Now we lay down our lives for our enemies. It's not as though one day our enemies are not going to be destroyed. We know that's the case. That's precisely why we're laying down our lives now because we're trying in mercy to express God's desire to bring them into the kingdom by repentance and faith. So here you see the harshness of evil itself. When you oppose God, what you do is lay down your, your, your life to be destroyed by God's judgment, which we all deserve. David also defeated Hadadezer, verse 3, the son of Rehob king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. Why did he hamstring them? So they could be useful for plowing, for agriculture, but they wouldn't be useful for warfare anymore. Once again, that was a typical Mideastern methodology. And so David is enforcing peace on his enemies, who are using their animals to oppose God's people. Well, let me tell you, there's destruction even on the animals when they are taken under possession by God's enemies. So sin is pervasive and deep and profound and will receive the judgment of God 
unless we come in the tent of His chosen people and His dynasty for salvation. That's the picture that's clearly here in chapter 8. Going down to verse 9, When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek. Look at all those enemies that Israel had faced in times past, including David. And from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, and so on. We'll have to stop there. You can see the point. When God establishes His dynasty, which He's doing with David, He is establishing a theocracy where God is ruling over a particular nation, and He's ruling through that nation. And as we know from the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12, He is calling that nation actually to bless the nations. And that calling is upon Israel until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And then, of course, with the Apostle Paul and all the other apostles, this good news of the kingdom goes around the world to include all nations and all people to come into the dynasty, be under the blessing of God. But if one sets himself decidedly and resolves to be against the kingdom of God, they will face judgment. And God shows here in chapter 7 and 8 how He anoints His son, David, establishes His kingdom and His presence with Him, and gives Him rest from all of His enemies. And gentlemen, that's the fact of the matter. That's where this is all headed. When you come into His dynasty, He's establishing you in this dynasty. And amid all the chaos of the Philistines all around us, don't be confused and don't be dismayed. Yes, times may come and go, wax and wane, where there may be things that cause us our nerves to, to rattle from time to time. But God is bringing His kingdom to pass. Jesus said, I will build my church, and He is building it right now. And one day, the son of David, the heir of the great dynasty, is going to return. And He will make clear and make straight every way. He will bring justice, and He will bring vindication to His people. And that's the reason that we're devoted to Him. Because we're the ones who deserve to be judged and destroyed. And yet He has made us His sons simply by trusting Him, simply by giving Him our lives, simply by receiving what He's done for us on Calvary's cross. That's the dynasty to which you belong. Praise the Lord for it. May we always praise Him. May we always follow Him. May we always be devoted to Him in every aspect of our being because of the great majesty of His name. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this great promise You have made to Your servant David, a promise fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, a promise continuing to be fulfilled as men like ourselves receive Your promise of amnesty to come into this family, to be received as brother, and to be made one of Your warriors, to be made one of Your missionaries, to go all over the world through deeds of love and mercy to make Your name known, that You are the King, the only God, and that You are giving forgiveness to everyone who has previously opposed You, and You are receiving them as Your own children. Help us this day to bear that message in the way that we live, in the way that we speak, even the way that we think. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.